Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together in freedom and learn, learn your glorious word. And also, Lord, we're thankful that you did not leave us to subjective experiences, but gave us the objective word of God that we may know you and know that we have eternal life through faith in Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, permeate everything we do and say today, that your name would be lifted on high and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Say, I want to talk a few minutes about just um, format. I'm going to be taking over a large part of our Sunday schools from now on. And part of the reason was really to free up Bob so his voice will last longer <laughs> and also uh, enable him to do more research, enable him to kind of have more time to do the things that Bob does in CIC and his sermons and so forth. He, of course, him and uh, others will be doing Special. So the, the week that I do the sermon, he'll be doing the Sunday school or he'll have somebody else um, if we have a special topic or so forth. Normally, I'm going to have you guys facing this way now because I like to use PowerPoint. I'm not as freewheeling as Bob. I need it, This is more for me than it is for you. But the other thing is I, what I like about it is we can point to verses. We can both look at them together and then I can point things out. So we're all looking at the same thing. You see what I'm saying? But realize, I don't, what I don't want to change is your ability to ask questions or to give comments, all right? So just think of it as normal, like we're just around Bob, okay? And you can ask anything you want. I'll try to keep us on somewhat of a schedule so we keep moving. But realize, on some weeks, let's say we don't get through all my slides. I don't care. We'll just put the slides off until the next week, okay? So feel free to ask questions and, and give comments, just like always. Today is going to be a little bit different in that, that I'm going to give you an introduction and so there probably won't be as many comments, but maybe you still do. Feel free. I'll try to get through the introduction in our 55 minutes we have because the book of Colossians is a fairly, I thought it was a very simple book. It's actually fairly formidable only in the sense that once you understand the heresy that the Colossians were facing, it becomes a very easy book. But understanding the heresy and getting down to the root cause of what the problem was that the Colossians were facing that is, in fact, difficult, and I'm going to lay it out before you and kind of give you the big picture so then when we go to interpret the book, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, it becomes very easy. Are you with me? First of all, I'm just going to get through some basics. Paul wrote the book of Colossians, and I don't spend a lot of time uh, arguing with scholars who claim that he doesn't or he didn't write the book of Colossians because, again, normally those who refute um, apostolic, the, the apostolic writers, the, nor, the reason why they're doing so is because they, they think, well, Paul is using words and phrases that he normally doesn't. You guys, we don't know the complete vocabulary of Paul. N none of us can know that. And so it's a very weak argument. It'd be like me looking at your letters that you wrote 2,000 years ago and saying, well, you, poss you couldn't possibly have written that. Your vocabulary wasn't that large. Well, how do I know? Yeah, I don't know you that well. So Paul wrote this, okay? And what I want to talk a little bit about now is the date. It's actually important, and I kind of figured out something this weekend. I think Paul wrote this around 62 A.D. Now, why would that be important? Well, remember, we're talking about the area of Colossae, which is in Asia Minor. And in that area, there was a large earthquake between 60 and 61 A.D. Now, why is that significant? Well, a lot of the towns would have been left in rubble, I think one of the problems in Colossae was they were dealing with a crisis of faith. Namely, the angels, as you're going to see that they were invoking, they thought maybe they could help out more than Jesus Christ could after an earthquake. 
I think this earthquake plays a big part of this heresy or could. I can't be for certain on that. So I'll come back to that in a minute. It'll make more sense. But I think this is written about a year after this earthquake, about 62 A.D. Again, they had a large earthquake. And I'm going to show you a map here in a minute. Okay, who are the recipients? Well, the the saints at Colossae who were addressed as faithful brothers in Christ were not converted through the ministry of Paul himself. By the way, I'm I'm quoting a guy named Peter O'Brien. He says, This Christian community had come into existence during a period of vigorous missionary and evangelistic activity associated with Paul's Ephesian ministry. And again, that would have been around 52 to 55 A.D., and it's recorded in the book of Acts. Now, that's what Peter O'Brien contends. Also realize this, that Epaphras, he was more than likely the one who had evangelized the city of Colossae, and according to Colossians 4.12, he was one of them. Okay, so he was actually from that area. He knew what these people believed. He knew their idiosyncrasies. He was the one that evangelized them. And he was more than likely the one who Paul trusted in order to keep the church in order. Now, let me show you an actual map here. And I'm going to actually point with my pointer. I'm going to look up and see what you're seeing here. Notice, you see where Smyrna is and you have Ephesus. These are port cities. And you see this trail this is a trail that was a major trade route up here as well by Sardis. But this is a major trade route, and it follows this meander river. By the way, in English, we have the term meander, meaning you're going all over the place. That's actually where the term comes from, because this river had a lot of switchbacks and bends and so forth. So if you ever hear that term meandering about, that's where it comes from. And so this river, if you follow it, you come to Laodicea and Hierapolis to the north, and here's Colossae, and it's in what's called the Lycus Valley. This place is very rich, very fertile because of the river. And so a major portion of its goods or its economic wealth came from wool because they would have sheep that would be grazing. Okay, now why is this important? Well, because this is a major trade route between here and Mesopotamia. So Colossae was very wealthy, but it gets destroyed, and again, about 60, 61 A.D., possibly to the point where they never really rebuilt it to the way it was. You see what I'm saying? And I think that may have led to a sort, somewhat of a crisis of faith with the new Christians. All right? Now, oh, by the way, if you follow this trade route, let me point here. If you follow this trade route, you keep going to the east, you'll eventually run to the Euphrates River. In fact, it runs into a Karakamesh. Does everybody know where that is? That was the, where the site of the battle was of the Babylonians when they uh, destroyed Nico and the Egyptians in 605 B.C., and also the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians become a great world power. So if you follow that trail, it takes you all the way to the Euphrates River. So this is an important junction, is it not? Okay. Now, let me keep moving along here. And I want to talk a little bit about the people. Now, realize this. I'm just going to read you this slide. They were mainly indigenous, the indigenous people of Greek and Phrygian settlers But there was a scholar who said this, that, in fact, it's from Josephus. He says, 2,000 Jewish families had been planted in Lydia, in Phrygia, under Antiochus III. He was, by the way, the father of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Everybody remember that name? He was the foreshadowing, really, of the Antichrist, in my opinion. He was the one who desecrated the temple and led the Jews to the Maccabean Revolt, about 165 uh, B.C. So he had actually planted in this area about 2,000 Jewish families. Now, this is important because the Jews are going to end up taking a bunch of their, what would you say, folk beliefs and magical practices that they end up developing in Persia 
and they end up bringing it into the Christian community, in my opinion. Okay, And so what you're going to see is a bunch of magical practices that the Jews who got off into the heresy, they're going to end up bringing this into the Colossian church. And I think it initially stems from Persia. Okay, So that's probably where the settlers came from was when they were resettled under Antiochus III. Now, the purpose, why did Paul write this? Really three reasons, let me give you them. The first one is to express personal interest in the church. He loved them. He considered them uh, brethren, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith. He fully expected that they would turn around and repent of the, the heresies that they were involved with. He loved these people as his own. And really, they were an extension of his ministry. Uh, He was to warn against reverting to their old pagan ways, which is, of course, a fruit of repentance. But the third and the biggest one, this is really the reason why Paul wrote it, was to refute the false teaching threatening the church. This is called the Colossian heresy or the Colossian philosophy. And the remainder of my lecture here this morning is about what that philosophy or heresy was. If we, in fact, can nail that down, we're going to understand the book of Colossians. Okay? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get into three phrases from within the book of Colossians that we're going to get into into some depth. And what I want you to see is what the heresy was. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in with the first phrase or the first term that needs to be defined. Let me put it up here. It is, in fact, the term stoichia. Now, you've heard Bob talk about that numerous times, have you not? The term stoichia. We see this four times, actually, in Pauline epistles, twice in Galatians and twice here in Colossians. Colossians 2.8 and 2.20. Let me show you where it is in 2.8. Colossians 2.8 says this. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Let me make a few notes with you on this passage. Notice here where it says philosophy. I have that underlined. And I underlined it intentionally so that I would remind you or tell you guys that there should be a definite article in front of philosophy. Now, what's a definite article? What's the? Okay, An indefinite is a. I'm just giving you guys a grammar lesson again because i know it's been a while so a definite article is the so he's talking about not just any particular philosophy but the philosophy that gives us a clue my friends that paul is concerned about a particular heresy a particular teaching you see there's many people who are claiming that well there wasn't a set defined heresy that the colossians were dealing with it was just many different hodgepodge if you will of different heretical concerns but no this gives us an indication that there was a system a colossian system heresy that in fact was in place and so that's why in fact paul is writing this to address that also notice the i have again i hate to do this to you but i'm going to talk about these prepositions just real quickly i'll do it more when we get into the text itself during our study but notice it says according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles well Then it says here, of the world, rather than according to Christ. Again, I think this is a preposition of standard. The standard of teaching that these people were believing in was to the standard of men. It was to the standard of the stoichia, which I'll define in a minute, but it wasn't to the standard of Christ. It fell short, didn't it? Way short. And as I'm going to show you later, if you fall short of Christ, what are you in jeopardy of 
not having. You're not you're in jeopardy of not having salvation. Why? Because only Christ saves. Okay, this is serious. This is as serious as a heart attack. That the fact that these people were falling into this air. Okay, now. This elementary principles, what in the world is that? Well, that's where we get our term stoichia. And there's really, there's three possibilities, major possibilities that this stoichia could be. Let me list them for you. This is what's called, by the way, a semantic range. Okay? So a lot of times, if you're studying on your own and you go to a lexicon and do a word study, realize you're dealing with a semantic range. The term could be from here to here. And your job as the interpreter, as the Bible student, is to determine how exactly the biblical author is using it, okay? One good way of doing that is finding out how the particular biblical author uses it in other places, okay? Are you with me? So we'll see how Paul uses it in other places, and that'll help us determine how stoichia is used, okay? But now let me give you the options here. Number one, elementary instruction. So you can see here it's in the NAS, they have elementary principles, and I think that's what they're kind of thinking of. It's the elementary instruction. It's the idea of basic things. In fact, it's often used as a term for the alphabet or letters. Okay. The other option is this. It's the, ele- the physical elements, wind, fire, rain, etc. Okay. Actually, I think that's what the NES is thinking here, that somehow there were people who believed and worshipped the physical elements. But there's a third option and an option that I think is much more compelling. And, oh, by the way, I should say this at the outset. I'm indebted to a man named Clinton Arnold for all this material. I was not smart enough to come up with this. I thought this was a very easy book until I read Clinton Arnold. And I learned a ton. And I want to thank Bob for giving me that book. And it was actually Keith's. So thank Keith the next time you see him for buying this book. Otherwise, I'd be in the dark about this, this passage. So what this Clinton Arnold does, my friends, is he ends up discovering through his studies in the actual Asia Minor region where Colossae is. He sees all these inscriptions. He sees different letters and amulets, which are bracelets or um, things that people wear. And he realizes that these terms have been used in the popular culture of the day. And so what he realizes is that, in fact, these are spirit beings who rule over the elements. In other words, the stoichia are fallen angels. They're angels or spirit beings, let's put it that way, that rule over the physical elements, namely the the wind, fire, and the rain, and so forth. Now, let's go back to our idea of a possible earthquake, okay? One of the elements that these these stoichia would be over would be earthquakes, okay? Now, why would that be so significant? Well, think about the Colossians going through a devastating event. They They just came to Christ, but they had come out of this idea of where they have to seek angels and invoke the help of angels for protection against these stoichia. See, these stoichia were, uh, were fallen angels who actually controlled fate, okay? And they controlled whether you were going to get married or not. They're, they controlled whether or not you are going to have crops, when you were going to die, whether or not your grave was going to be defiled. They controlled these things. So that's what the Christians had come out of. They needed to invoke the help of angels to protect them from the stoichia. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, you just become a Christian. You're in Colossae. And shortly thereafter, there's this huge earthquake. What may may you be thinking? Maybe I should go back to invoking angels. I need their help. Maybe Christ isn't really sufficient. Because remember, in this world, 
through Christ, we're not promised a bed of roses, are we? In fact, in this world, we'll have trial and tribulation. Christ promises that. But what we're promised is eternal life, right? But see, it would have been weighing heavily upon their mind. So again, the term stoichia is a term that has to do with these spirit beings that ruled the elements. And if you're going to have success in this life or even survive, you needed to get help from angels that would, in fact, um, cover you and give you the ability to refute and to stand with, uh, underneath these stoichia. Okay, that's the idea. Okay, let me continue on here. There's another term that I want to talk about. And I'm sorry, I had a font on here and it didn't come up. But there's another phrase. Let me just read it off to you because I can't read it in this gibberish here. Oh, real quick too, let me back up. You know, I forgot to tell you guys some things about the stoichia that I wanted to talk about. By the way, the stoichia, let me come back to the idea. Remember the Jews, I said they came, a lot of them came from Persia and they settled in the area of Phrygia around Colossae. The idea of the Stoichia actually developed in the Persians. The Persians had this idea that there were archangels, and these archangels actually ruled over something called deacons. Now, not the deacons that you and I have in the church, obviously, but these were spirit beings as well. They were sub-angels, and there was, in fact, 36 of them. And each of these sub-angels or deacons would run 10 degrees of the celestial sphere. So if you multiply the 36 times the 10, you get 360 degrees all the way around the globe. They believed that these angels, these deacons, ran the celestial sphere. Okay, So what they did is they believed that they would go to the higher angels, the archangels, and invoke them and get help with the deacons. Does that make sense? And so the idea of the stoichia plays into that because what the stoichia are are these angels who govern the entire universe. Okay, and the idea really stems from the Jews who were in Persian, I wouldn't say captivity because they're actually let go by Cyrus, but that's where they come from. You see what I'm saying? I think that's where the heresy probably stemmed from. Okay, so again, 36 deacons, they control the spirit world. Each one of them ruled 10 degrees. I think that's very interesting. So they, they knew their math. They knew their, um, their astronomy as well. Oh, by the way, I wanted to get into a few verses. If you guys wouldn't mind reading some for me. I want to talk a little bit more about the stoichia where it's used. Who has a Bible? Well, you guys all have a Bible. That's good. James, do you want to read for me Galatians 4, 1 through 3? And then somebody else, um, Jeremy, do you want to do Galatians 4, 8 through 9? And what I'm going to do, you're going to see the term stoichia used here. And we're going to see how Paul has used it in this place here in Galatians Galatians 4, 1 to 3. Now, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a minor, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. So also we, when we were minors, were enslaved under the basic forces of this world. Okay, great. So now you see where James read basic forces. The NASB has elemental things. That's, again, the term stoichia. Okay, so again, there's the idea, and what I think Paul's referring to is that before we came to Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you are a custodian under the elemental things. You're in bondage under what? Under the stoichia. Okay, so you're actually in bondage to the angelic realm, the, the fallen angels, the demons, Satan himself. So in Paul's thinking, there's really only two realms. There's the realm of the demons, of Satan himself, 
And then there's the realm of Christ. Okay? So think about this very carefully. There's only two realms in Paul's thinking. The age that's passing and the age that's coming. The present age that's filled with darkness, that's governed by Satan and his demons, and the age that Christ leads to through his gospel. And before you read the Galatians 4, 8 through 9, somebody read for me Galatians 1, 4. And this will kind of help explain that. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Okay, read, start up, read the whole thing again. Start in verse 3 and go all the way through verse 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our loved in our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so again, Paul is using this term, this present evil age. Okay, now that's in contrast with the age to come, the messianic age. So Paul is using the mindset of a two-age system. Okay, there's only two ages. There's the age now where we're blinded by the God of this world, small g, Satan, and we're under the demonic rule. But when we come to Christ, now we've entered into a different realm. We've come into a new age. Okay, and so we have to take that and apply it now to Galatians 4 because that's what Paul is referring to. We were formerly under the stoichia of the past age, but when you came to Christ, you've been transformed to a new age. Okay, now... Not the new age, but a new age. Okay? <laughs> Be very careful there. All right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's two ages. Yeah. Now, who had the Galatians 4, 8 through 9, Jeremy? We'll see the same principle again, Stoichia, yeah, how it's used. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which, which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So now he's, ask, he's asking the question, why would you turn back to the stoichia? Well, what is it in the, the context of Galatians? It's Judaizing, isn't it? It's returning back to the things of the law. That you have to keep certain calendar days, that you have to do uh, circumcision, that you have to do the ceremonial and civil law that's been done away with, Right? He's saying, if, if Paul is saying, if you're doing those things, you're back under the stoichia. You're back under the old age. Get out of that age and come to the, the age that, the, that Christ has brought. That's the idea there. So that's the idea where stoichia, again, is used. And they are, in fact, spirit beings in Galatians, and they certainly are in Colossians as well. Yeah, go ahead. If I could just add a little something to that, that's a great understanding. And it also fits with this thing that I did last fall about the host of heaven. Oh, yeah. Because, remember... Under the Old Covenant, if the Jews were faithful to God, they were directly under Yahweh. Yeah. All of the other nations were under the host of heaven. Right. They considered 70 nations and, and so on. Deuteronomy 32. And then I quoted in Acts 7 from Stephen's speech how because Israel rebelled against Yahweh, he put them under the host of heaven. So you have the same idea under the Old Covenant. You're either under Yahweh and you're His, yeah. or you're under these, this, these spirit beings, yes. the host of heaven, yeah. and they ruled over you. And, right. and so if they rebelled, they went back under the host of heaven, according to Stephen. So this stoichia is really the same concept as the host of heaven in the Old Testament. 
That's exactly, I, I think you're, and you know, in fact, when you talked about the host of heaven, that revolutionized my understanding of the stoichia. I think it plays right into it. You bring up another concept you just reminded me of, and that's the, con- we'll get into it in a little bit, but it's the concept of position. Mm-hmm. See, what a lot of the false religions are doing today, my friends, is they want to have an experience where you and I as Christians are asked to believe that God has put us in a new position. Okay. In other words, you and I haven't actually physically experienced what it's like to be in the kingdom of Christ. Am I right? He hasn't come yet. We haven't received a resurrected body, but we are positionally there. Okay. It's a realized eschatology in that sense. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But what, what Bob is pointing out is that this even happened in the Old Covenant, that the Israelites who believed in Yahweh, they were positionally, in other words, rendered by God or considered by God under him, Whereas those who had rejected Yahweh, they are positionally under the stoichi or under the host of heaven. Okay, yeah. And, the, and you get the same idea in the New Testament when we talk about apostasy that, uh, in Galatians. is because God delivered them from the stoichia, they are positionally under Christ. Right. And see, yes. in Ephesians talks about that, you, that, you, that you're seated with Christ above the principalities and powers, another term for these. Yes, okay? yeah. And if you commit apostasy, just like in Israel apostatized, they went back under the host of heaven like the pagans. If a Christian apostatized, they're throwing themselves back under the stoichi and they're ruled by the spirits and the demons rather than by Christ. That's right. Complete regression. Yeah. And this just makes the whole Bible make sense. It does. It makes it come alive. Yeah. Yep. And again, so again, the big picture here, you guys, the stoichi are spirit beings who rule over the elements. If we keep that straight, it's going to really help us out. And also this two-age scheme being under one or the other. You're either under the stoichia, the host of heaven, because you're in unbelief, you're in heresy, you're in apostasy, or you're under Christ, and you're, going to, you're part of the new age. Yeah, the age to come. I was just going to clarify that, you know, you were t- saying that they, those that in this system would thought to believe that they had to invoke angels. Yeah. And to protect them from the stoichia, when in fact, in reality, those angels they were invoking are part of the Stokia. That's a great point, Scott. <laughs> They're yeah. demons too. Yeah, and in fact, in this verse, notice Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Literally, in the Greek, take you as plunder. And how is the enemy going to plunder you but by having you believe that you need the help of these angels, that you don't have sufficiency through faith alone and Christ alone, all by grace alone, and so you're right, by the very nature of believing in these, that you need these angels to protect you from stoichia, you are now back under the stoichia. Yeah, exactly. So thanks for pointing and clarifying that. Yeah, Patrick. When I um, first heard about this and, and that they were falling into this, I thought, well, how could, how could good God-fearing Jews who knew their Old Testament believe yeah. in this kind of stuff? This isn't, you don't find this teaching anywhere in the Old Testament. Weren't they, didn't they know their Bible? And the truth is that all throughout, you know, especially in New Testament times and all throughout history since then, the Jews have been very sectarian. They've been divided into various different beliefs and, and taken all, all kinds of different beliefs. And I didn't realize for a while, but the whole nature of the way Jewish culture grew and evolved is that there's all kinds of conflicting beliefs going on. And rabbis try to sort them out and try to, uh, argue with each other and, and teach what they think is right, but it's not sola scriptura by any means. <laughs> right. It, it should have been. 
they were called to that. You're, you're absolutely right. And that brings up a point that I should really clarify. To be fair, it's a great point. The, the Jews had a lot of different teachings, but realize this heresy isn't just a Jewish one. I think that's where the elements initially come from. But this is a magical belief system that uh, the idea that you have to invoke angels to protect you from the stoichia, this is the common belief among the common people of the day. If anybody read Bob's uh, article on the Colossian heresy, in the, I think it's a great analogy that he makes in there where he makes the analogy between the horoscopes that we all read today, not that we all read them, but that people read in our culture, you see what I'm saying, and, and the Colossian heresy. Why? Because... In America, we have people that call themselves Jews. Um, they call themselves Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, whatever. But if they're nominal in their belief systems, what do they actually look at in the paper all the time? They look at their horoscope. Okay? It's kind of the common thing to do among the, the common people. Look at your horoscope today. See if it's a lucky number. Maybe you shouldn't be driving. Maybe you should go bet on the dog race. Or maybe the Vikings will win, right? Okay, that's the idea. It's the common belief during the day. That's what the Colossian heresy was. It was a heresy among the common people. So it wasn't, don't, don't get me wrong, Patrick's absolutely right that there was a lot of different variances within Jewish belief, uh, the belief system in that time period. But this isn't just a Jewish problem. It's, it's a problem among many different types of people. Yeah. One more thing while you set that verse up there. Yeah. Notice it says the philosophy, not in NASB, but you, as you point out, it's a particular philosophy. Yeah. This verse has been used. I've had people, especially these King James only guys, mm. they're saying that you can't do anything but just read the King James. If you're, if you're studying commentaries, and I mean, then you're just into philosophy, and this forbids it. Oh, no, this doesn't forbid the study of philosophy, and it doesn't forbid scholarly pursuits is forbidding the philosophy mm. and the other thing that clinton arnold pointed out is that the philosophy actually came from the stoichia yeah. was see according to the yeah. stoichia so right. the stoichia the are the source yeah. of the teaching that you have to be protected from the stoichia yeah that's a great point and you know what another point that you bring up is think about okay people are abusing this term philosophy Okay, like this King James only people. They're saying, well, you can't ever get into philosophy. Um, you can't get into any of these other things. But realize, what are they doing? They're taking this scripture out of context. Why? Because they're not understanding what Paul is referring to. He's talking about the philosophy, the philosophy that the Colossians were dealing with, namely a belief that you had to invoke angels to protect you from stoichia. Now, does that mean, can we take that and logically say that we can't study philosophy so that we may know logic, for instance? No. Okay, and that's why getting to the original root of what the text says, in fact, <laughs> Glenn's laughing back there. In fact, that's why it's important to get to the original meaning of the text. Is that, you see what I'm saying? Okay. Oh, we got a question back there or comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to give a little emphasis to what you're saying with a really brief personal testimony. Having been brought up in the Catholic Church, it reminds me of being taught to pray to my guardian angel for protection yeah. rather than to Jesus Christ or, you know, to pray to Mary and that sort of thing. It wasn't until I got saved that I realized I was basically getting in touch with spirit guides, yeah. and it actually was the predecessor to get me involved in the occult later in my teen years. Yeah. You know, that's ex you, the point that you just brought up is directly related to this text. That would be a perfect implication an application of this text is exactly right. In fact, we're going to talk about um, Christ alone. I want to get to that doctrine here. So let me keep rolling for a little bit. 
again, this is a little unusual because I'm giving you this introduction. It won't be like this all the time. I want to get through my slides. <laughs> um, but just because I put a lot of work into them. Here, let's try to get through them here. Number two. <laughs> Um, hold on a sec. Number two, I'll, get, I'll um, take more comments here in a bit. But here's another phrase I want to get into. It's, um, in Greek, it's, well, I can't read that gibberish, but it's, it's a ha horakin imbatuon. And what that means is, well, we'll find out what it means, but let me show you how Paul uses it here in Colossians 2.18. This is the NASB. So what I'm going to have is the NASB up here. Then I'm going to show you this Clinton Arnold, his translation, and show you how getting this phrase right really changes the meaning of this passage. The NASB has this. It says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on the visions he has seen. Now, do you see that phrase that I have underlined, taking his stand? That is a translation of this participle. It's a present active participle, imbatuon. Okay? Now, why am I bringing that up? Well, this Clinton Arnold, in his research, what he found was in a lot of the temples and writings of the day, this phrase, imbatuon, literally means to enter. And it's a technical religious term um, that the mystery rites, these people that were involved with these mystery rites, they actually had this term. It, it was, the term was used to indicate their initiation into this mystery-like cult. In fact, it was the second phase of their initiation. Okay? And it would have been an ecstatic, visionary experience whereby they in, enter into this, this experience where they now think that they have uh, protection from the stoichia by entering into the realm of the angels and getting their protection. And this is an experience. They actually, perhaps some of them are actually seeing things. They're having visions. They're having a, 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 some sort of physical experience. Of course, we know it's demonic, but they don't know that, okay? All right, now, let me just show you Clinton Arnold. So, what, again, he found how this term was used, for instance, in a temple called uh, the Temple of Apollos in Clarion, or, Cl- or Claros, rather. Um, I wish I had my map up there still, but it's on the coast, uh, just south of where Sardis is. So in this temple, it talks about this term, imbatuon, how they had entered. And again, who entered? Well, the people did into this mystery rite, whereby they came into this ecstatic experience where they had protection from the angels and now no longer had to fear the stoichia. So this is a very powerful experience. Let me show you Clinton Arnold's translation of this verse. And now again, he's using this information. He says, um, it's better to render it this way. Let no one condemn you by insisting on aesthetic practices and invoking angels because he entered, there's the, the term imbatuon, he entered the things he had seen, i.e., namely, he based his knowledge slash authority on visionary experiences he received during the final stage of his mystery initiation. You see how big a difference that is? That's a huge difference in understanding of this passage, is it not? Because what Clinton Arnold is saying is these people entered in to such an experience that when they hear the gospel, that they are to believe in a man who was crucified on a cross, who was raised from the dead, in that in this world they'll have nothing but trial and tribulation, in that someday they'll be you know, raised from the dead, given a resurrected body. Well, you can see how powerful of a draw this ecstatic experience would have been. They would, remember, they're believing in a Jewish Messiah crucified on a cross in Jerusalem. Okay, yes, raised from the dead, they have all these promises, but did they actually have an experience? 
And that directly relates to today. What do people want? They don't want to have positional salvation to believe in the word of God. What they want is an experience. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But you can see how powerful this, this idea, this visionary experience that they had would have been. So again, this imbatuon, this participle, has to do with them entering the things that they had seen in the second portion of this initiation rite, whereby they now have protection of the angels from the stoichia. And now they think, hey, I'm golden. My kids will no longer get sick. I'll never have any migraines. My dog won't get run over. My goat won't kill over. My crops will grow. Whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be great. Okay? All right. Now, let me give you one more phrase that we have to deal with, and that is the worship of angels. Colossians 2.18, Paul says, Again, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of Thrascea Ton Angelon, the worship of angels. Let me show you. There's three ways that this has been, in fact, interpreted. The first way is the Gnostic way. It's a Gnostic-oriented cult of angels, meaning angels were worshipped and appeased because they could hinder the ascent of the soul upon death. Let me talk about this idea of Gnosticism real briefly. How many here have heard of Gnosticism? Okay, it's a, it's a real important, I think, concept or false religion to understand because it's prevalent in New Testament times. But it's also very vague because there's so many branches of it. But let me give you the basics. The basics of Gnosticism is that you have a duality, in other words, an opposing idea of of spirit and physical elements. Okay, so in other words, everything physical is evil, everything spiritual is good. Why? Well, because you have a perfect God who had emanations of himself. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what they believe. I know it's odd. But they had, he had emanations created of himself called eons, A-E-O-N-S. And he kept creating these eons or emanations that were like him but not quite him. And the more and more he made, now this is the Gnostic view, the more and more he made, um, if, if you go from eon to eon to eon to eon, eventually he came to one that was not like him enough where it would create the world. Okay, now why is that important? Because everything physical is evil. Everything of God is spiritual. So he had to create a bunch of beings in a row where finally one at the end of the chain was dissimilar enough to God where he could create the evil world and therefore God isn't responsible for the evil we see. Do you see what I'm saying? So these are called eons. And so he made all these eons. And now the way you're going to be saved as a person is, is every not all of us, but some elite people have a divine spark or one of these emanations within them. Okay. And through gnosis, okay, now that's knowledge, but it's not just any knowledge. It's an experiential, ecstatic, um, what's the term, mystical knowledge. Through this knowledge, you're going to alert yourself to the fact that you're divine. Okay, now remember the original sin? You'll be like God, knowing good from evil, right? So they're falling into this idea. So they, they alert, or alert their body to the fact that they're God by Um, waking up the divine spark within them through this gnosis, the secret knowledge, and then on the last day they will be elevated into the heavenly realm, but their progress can be impeded by something called acrons. So if you just remember eons and acrons, acrons are wicked angels, and they can impede your ascent to the heavenly realm. So what do you need to do? You need to invoke angels to get protection, you see. Otherwise, you won't, you won't get past the acrons, okay? 
that's a bad problem to have. Yeah, if you can't get past the Akrons, then you've got trouble. Okay, but let me show you why I don't think this is what is entailed, or this. I don't think this is the heresy that Paul is dealing with. This not, and this is what I used to believe. But I think Arnold puts a really the death knell to this by the following ideas. Number one, the problem of full-blown Gnostic thought did not occur for another 140 years. Okay. In other words, these ideas that I was just telling you about really didn't come about for another 140 years. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't some, you know, starts of that. And in fact, I think maybe some of the heresies that we're talking about is the starting of the Gnosticism, but it's probably not a full-blown Gnostic heresy that we're dealing with. And the biggest problem is this. This is really telling. Notice the hindrance of the soul's ascension is not addressed by Paul. In other words, remember I talked about the Akron? If the Akron keeps your soul from ascending and getting into the heavenly realm, if that's the big problem with Gnosticism, why does not Paul address that in Colossians if that, in fact, is the heresy that he's dealing with? You see what I'm saying? It would have, it would have been there. So it, it's not there, and so I, I don't think that's probably what he's talking about. So let me give you the second option of what this phrase could be. Jewish mysticism of a Qumran influence. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, people wanted to participate in the heavenly angelic liturgy by worshiping with the angels. Okay. Now, in this view, it's not that you're worshiping angels, but rather you're worshiping with the angels. Okay. This is what's called a subjective genitive. And by the way, I know Bob has used that term a time or two, and I have probably, and other people. Does everybody know what, a, what we mean by that? A genitive is just a case in the Greek. There's, there's four... There's actually five, but there's four main cases in Greek. There's the nominative case. That's the case of the subject. There's the accusative. That's the case of the direct object. Okay, so I would be the nominative. Hit the ball. The ball would be the accusative, right? Well, then you have a genitive case, which is a case of possession. Okay, so when we're talking about whether something is subjective or objective, and then there's also um, a dative, which is the indirect object. But genitive is a uh, case of possession, And when we're talking about subject or objective genitive, what we're wondering is, if it's subjective, then the angels are those who are doing the worship. They're the subject. See? They're the ones who are doing the worship. All right? Does that make sense? But if it's an objective genitive, then they're being worshipped. You see, that's what the debate is about. Well, there are many scholars who believe that this should be taken as a subjective genitive. In other words, the angels were actually the ones who were doing the worship. And so the Jews believed, some in the Qumran community, that we would actually... Uh, or we could, ascend into the angelic realm and participate in their worship around the throne. Okay? And let me give you the weaknesses, though, of this position quickly so I can keep moving. Um, The problems are worship with angels is almost certainly an objective genitive. We'll talk more about this when we get to this section um, based on evidence and usages of other writings. So the subjective genitive idea is ruled out, really. I'll show you why later. The Qumran community, this is the big reason, though. The Qumran community was far removed from the Lycus Valley where Colossae is situated. Again, um, think about how far away the Qumran community around the Dead Sea and the Essenes were from the Lycus Valley. And we didn't have 747s back then, right? You had to take a slow boat. And these guys probably wouldn't have had much influence on those in the Lycus Valley. But the, the people who came down from Persia... In, from Jewish captivity, they would have. Okay, so again, more than likely, the Qumran wouldn't have had any influence. So I think this this option should be ruled out. The third option, of course, which is I think the correct one, is this: it's a combination of local pagan and Jewish folk beliefs, 
Angels were invoked by the Colossians to protect them from evil spirits, again, the stoichia, and to provide favor in the various day-to-day activities of life. Now, how do we know this? Well, again, inscriptions in the Phrygian area verify that magical rituals were performed not to worship angels, but to manipulate them for the guarding of graves, for protection against evil spirits, and for the performing of curses. Let me read you, that, that's, friends, that's the heresy right there. That's what the heresy is. Now, let me give you a quote from Arnold, okay? And he really does a great uh, summary of it. Let me read you what he says. This is, the, this is the heresy, you guys. He says, It appears that the practice of invoking angels at Colossae does not have so much to do with matters of ultimate spiritual influence as it does with the issues of day-to-day life. As with the veneration of angels in Judaism, of magic and incantations, the Colossians' practice involved a diminution of one's relationship to Yahweh and now Christ in favor of a manipulative relationship with his angels. The greater implication is with Christology, where it appears that Christ is either neglected in favor of calling upon angels or is regarded on the same level as the angels. In other words, the view of Christ is high and lifted up, and him being the unique Savior, creator of all, is, is brought down, isn't it? He's just one among many. Christ, what's so special about Christ? We, we need the help of angels. Yeah, we have Christ here, but we had angels too. That's the idea. And so that's why this is so particularly troubling to Paul. Let me explain the importance of this idea of solus Christus. In other words, uh, faith in Christ alone. The idea that all we need is Christ. Let me talk about Christianity and the relationship between false religions both yesterday and today. First of all, realize Christianity is based on the objective word but false religions oftentimes, and especially this one, you see is based on subjective experiences. Okay? In other words, these people, remember in Batuon, they entered in? That's a powerful experience. What do we see today as powerful experiences? Labyrinths. People are getting into transcendental meditation, altered state of, states of consciousness. These are powerful experiences. Okay? But are they getting the revelation from the Word of God? No. Okay, so revelation is a big difference between Christianity and false religions. The focus, what is the focus of Christianity? Jesus says in Luke 19.10, he says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Uh, 10.28 of Matthew, he says, what would a man, or he says, no, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear he who can kill both body or destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay, that's the focus, isn't it? Being saved from the wrath of God. So Christianity has to do with ultimate salvation. False religions have to do with favor here and now. Your dog doesn't get run over. Your grave isn't going to be tampered with. Things like that. Okay? As important as they are, it's not as important as salvation. Faith. Now here, I want to talk about this a minute. Um, Christianity talks about a cognitive faith. Okay, remember the, uh, Ryan talked about this once in our uh, Bible study, the three elements of saving faith, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. All saving faith has to do with knowledge, notitia. Okay, the, the, the facts of the gospel, who Christ is and what he did. Now, ascensus is saying, yes, those facts are true. Okay, now am I saved yet? No, I can still say I don't want any part of it. But fiducia happens when I say, that's for me. That's what I'm trusting in. That's for me. That's saving faith. So notitia, ascensus, and fiducia... So it's cognitive, though. There are things that we have to believe. Now, is saving faith more than cognitive belief? Yes, but it's not less than that. Okay? It's not less than that. All right? Now, notice 
the false religions, it's all mystical. Okay, how do I know that I'm going to, you know, have um, help from the angels? Well, because I had this mystical experience. Okay, um, that, that's problematic, isn't that? Because it could be from Satan himself, and it is. All right, now the other term I want to talk about is positional. Again, uh, what you and I are asked to believe is that positionally, when we trusted in Jesus Christ, we've been placed, as it says in Ephesians 2.6, with Christ in the heavenlies. That's positional. Has it actually happened yet? No. But positionally, you're on that side of the ledger. You're in the Lamb's book of life. Okay? So positionally, that's where you are. Now, what do the false religions teach? Not positional type thinking, but rather, where are you now, experientially? Well, I'm in Minnetonka, or where are we? St. Louis Park, sorry. <laughs> I don't even know where I am. Okay, I'm thinking positionally, that's why. Okay, so it's all experiential. You walk a labyrinth, why? To get closer to God. You, um, you enter into transcendental meditation, whatever it is. Contemplative prayer, why? Because you want to have an experience, okay? Now finally, here's the issue, I think, is the object of our faith, Christ alone. All false religions have Christ plus angels plus this plus that. Let me tell you a brief story. My wife was a missionary in India for a year. She preached the gospel with fervor with her missionary team. But she realized a problem that many people in India had because they had a pantheon of gods with a small g that they believed in. What they realized is that what they were doing is putting Jesus next to all their other gods. Yeah, we got, you know, Krishna and we got, you know, Havnu and we got all these other gods. And we'll just put Jesus up on the, and he's just one among many. Now, what's the problem with that? Can that type of faith save? No. Why? Because, friends, if we truly understood who Christ is, if we truly understood our need for atonement and righteousness, we know that, number one, Christ is sufficient, and Christ is, in fact, one who cannot tolerate anyone uh, believing in anything but himself. Why? Because he's all-sufficient, he's all-holy, he is the perfect righteous Savior that we need. We need nothing else. And so um, this is a big problem. The idea that we have... Christ plus anything is a huge problem. That's why Paul, remember in um, Galatians 1.8, he says, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, would preach a different gospel than the one I had preached, let him be an anathema, literally cursed of hell. He feared in Corinthians that someone would preach a different Christ. Why? Because Christ plus anything doesn't save. Okay? And that's why Christ alone is so necessary. Okay? Does that make sense? All right? And that's exactly why Paul was so concerned with what the Colossians were doing. So Paul, again, he warns against belief in a different Jesus and a different gospel. All right, so Colossians still speaks today. Um, let me just show you a, a quick, I know there's a lot up on this screen, but let me give you an example of this today. This is a conversation between two men in the emerging church. And this is a, so it's a little chopped up because it's an actual transcript. Let me show you how they fall into this type of heresy by demoting Christ to one among many. This is a man who's interviewing Brian McLaren. Listen to what he says. He, in the interview, he says, Now a more, what's the word to you, is a more conservative Christian, whatever, someone who believes in the literal ontological divinity of Christ, would have an argument and say, well, yes. But this, this, was, this was more central because it was actually God literally demonstrating that kind of love. And by the way, they're talking about what Jesus did on the cross. These men believe in the moral influence theory, you and I believe in the substitutionary atonement. And he goes on, he says, However, someone, a more liberal Christian, who might think that Jesus was perfectly imaging God's love or totally inspired by God's love but not literally God, 
Okay, to be honest, that's the direction I'm leaning more myself these days. We would have a hard time, hard time saying, what makes Jesus' life an example of living love to the death more unique than any other? Now listen to what Brian McLaren says. He says, right, if I understand what you're saying, these are important subjects. I understand you're saying, look, we could look at Gandhi's life as an example of self-sacrificial love or Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. There would be a lot of people we could look at. And so wouldn't it be better to just talk about Jesus as one among many rather than lift him up as some extraordinary example? Because by doing that, we create, we perpetuate this Christian elitism and exclusivism. I always tell people that I am a Christian elitist and exclusivist, not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is. Jesus says in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In fact, this is an exclusive um, gospel, isn't it? Why? Because all we need is Christ alone. And once we say that we need anything else, or Christ is just one among many, we have no salvation because we have then made Christ in our image. If we believe that we need Christ plus anything else, we do not serve or believe in the, the Christ of the Bible. And if we believe in a Christ other than the one revealed in the Bible, we have now made a Christ in our own image. That's the relevance, I think, of Colossians. And that's why it's such an important book for us to study uh, all together. Okay? Let's see. I think I've got more slides. But Oh, let me just show you the Apostle Paul's battle plan real quick. Two points. This is the direction Paul is going to go. Do I have time? Yeah. Just real quick. This is what he's going to do. Paul is going to demonstrate the absolute superiority, lordship, and deity of Jesus Christ. No longer will the Colossians have to fear rogue spirits and angels. Okay? And what he's also going to do throughout the book of Colossians is he's going to stress the status of believers as being people who are joint heirs with Christ who reigns over all demonic powers. All you need is Jesus. That's Paul's message. He is supreme. And he is, in fact, the author and finisher of our faith. All right, now, um, I'm done. Is anybody, do we have a minute? I think we got a minute. Does anybody have any questions? Uh, um, I'm sorry. But, you know, so now next week we're going to start right in, Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, okay? But is this, is this helpful, this little introduction? Is, does this make more sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah right. wonderful. Okay, good. I hope it was helpful. Uh, we want to thank you. You did a very good job. Clinton Arnold's work is, is seminal. As yeah, a matter of fact, I was out in, uh, at a think tank in San Diego, and there was, uh, I was talking to a pastor there who was teaching on Colossians, and he said, without Arnold, it's hard to believe, understand. It, it is. His work is and it's, and it's very highly respected in uh, the Christian scholarly community, so much so that it, it's basically one today. It's funny you mention that. You know, Bob, what I do now is if I look at a commentary on Colossians, mm-hmm. if it's written before Clinton Arnold's work, I... It's, it's not so helpful. It's not so helpful. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you did a good job of understanding okay, it and explaining it. Yeah, okay, thank good. You. Thanks, you guys. Well, we'll see you all back here next week then.